Ave, and welcome to the seventh series of When in Rome. And now, cue the music. When in Rome is a podcast about place and space in the Roman Empire. This is episode LXXIV, Villa of Theseus. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Christopher Gribben, an adjunct lecturer in classics and ancient history at La Trobe University. Cyprus was in an excellent position for trade in the Mediterranean, not just for the Roman Empire, but later for the Byzantine Empire as well. In the old capital of Nea Paphos, one of the richest and most extensive residences is the Villa of Theseus. Here's Christopher Gribben. The House of Theseus is located in Nea Paphos, which was the capital of Cyprus in antiquity. It's in a district where there's a number of very wealthy, large houses, mm. uh, sort of halfway between the harbour and the agora, the main sort of central square of the town. And the size and the prestige indicates that this was a fairly important person living in this house? Yes, yeah, so the, the house is absolutely massive. And so I've seen a number of different estimates for the total size of the house, depending on exactly what you count in and what you don't. It's not so well preserved in particularly the western part mm. of the site. But it's you know, at least 9,600 square metres for this house. So it is an absolutely massive house. The question is, who exactly did it belong to? And... Unfortunately, we have absolutely no evidence for that. We have assumed, or some people have assumed, that it would belong to the governor of the province. So as I say, Neopaphos was the, the capital of Cyprus during the Roman times. But the capital did, in fact, change in the 4th century AD from Neopaphos across to the other side of the island, to Salamis. Mm. And it's about that same time that the House of Theseus is built. Oh, okay. <laughs> was it built just before the capital moved and it was, you know, the governor's house from the beginning? Was it a governor's sort of second residence for when he was on the west side of the island? Uh, we don't really know is the short answer. We, we know that the house stayed in use for at least a couple of centuries after it was built. Mm. Yeah, whether it belonged to the governor, the only reason for assuming that is because of the, the sheer size and splendour of it, or whether it belonged to some very wealthy member of the population. We don't know. Considering the capital moved, it could be like a, a retirement kind of villa as well for somebody incredibly wealthy. Potentially, yeah. It has a lot of the trappings that you would expect to see in something that had a public facing component as well. So mm. it, it has bath complex, which would have been used to, to entertain people. It has waiting rooms for people coming to see whoever was living there. It has state rooms that would be used as audience chambers and that sort of thing. So yeah. whoever it was is somebody who was conducting important business, but absolutely, that may not have been the governor. Obviously, it was somebody who was extremely wealthy given the size and splendor of the house. Yeah, Maybe they were a prominent member of society for some other reason. So can you tell me about Cyprus and, and put it in a bit of context for us at the time and what sort of position it occupied in the Mediterranean and near Paphos, which was the capital for a while. I guess it was the Roman capital predominantly. Neopaphos was founded at the end of the 4th century BC. Mm. Prior to that time, Cyprus had been divided into a number of small 
city kingdoms. Okay. So approximately 10, it varied a bit depending on which period you looked at. Sometimes they'd conquer each other and that sort of thing. But uh, it had been divided into a number of city kingdoms. And then during the Hellenistic period, when it was taken over by the Ptolemies, it was all united under one. At that time, Neopaphos became the capital for the whole of the island of Cyprus. When the Romans took over in 58 BC, they simply continued on using Neopaphos as the same capital. Mm. And it stayed that way right until the 4th century AD when the capital was moved across to the other side of the island to, to Salamis. In terms of the importance of Cyprus, it played a really important role in the Mediterranean for a few reasons. One is that it was a very convenient stopping point on the journey from, particularly from Egypt and the Levant, so the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, heading westwards. Cyprus was a key stopping point there. But it also contained a couple of very important products, uh, one of them being copper, which it was very famous for, and had very large mountains with good wood on it as well. So that was also very important for trade and for shipbuilding and all those sorts of things. So Cyprus has a really interesting history because depending on what's happening around it. Sometimes it's on the edge of an empire. Sometimes it's in between two empires. And, you know, in during Roman times, it happens to be sort of right in the middle of an empire, effectively. It's surrounded by the Roman Empire all around it. So that makes it a very convenient place for trade and for the ships stopping along the way and for exchanging goods. So Cyprus does quite well for itself in antiquity. Okay. And tell me about the house. The house, you said 4th century CE. That's really late in the Roman Empire. Still just barely in the Roman Empire, depending on how you define such things. Do we know what it was, for example, you know, built over the top of, or do we know what those original foundations would have been? So a large part of the house was actually built in the second century AD. Okay. It was a portico house, so it was a, just a long rectangular house with a, a portico on one side and then a number of rooms going off the side of that. And that was then incorporated into the House of Theseus in the 4th century. So that portico was then turned into a courtyard. I think it's about 56 metres across. The southern wing uh, was what had originally been the portico house. And so that just gets incorporated in, reworked and and so on as part of the the redevelopment. Mm. There's something happening at that time. But as you say, the 4th century, it's an interesting time for the Roman Empire. Things are about to fall apart in the western half of the Roman Empire. Mm. And so the 5th century is really when things start going quite badly for a number of parts of Western Roman Empire, but it's still a very stable time for the Eastern Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire really keeps going until the 7th century AD with relatively little interruption. So there's still a lot of stuff happening and we have right through Cyprus, there were some very large building programs, particularly churches, that were happening in the 4th, 5th, 6th century AD. So it's still a time of great prosperity, even though things are falling apart elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. In this part of the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire is still going strong. Okay. Let's talk for a while about the structure of the building and what a visitor might have seen. We'll start at the front door. Uh, the, the House of Theseus, spoiler alert, is named after a impressive mosaic, which I want to meander our way through to. Mm. But if you could uh, tell me some of the features that this building had. So the centre of it was this large peristyle, 56 metres by 56 metres originally, with a portico that went around the edge of it that was about five metres wide, and then all of the rooms basically empty off. Yeah, yeah. Empty off that. But in addition to that, it has a large monumental 
entranceway. It has a bath complex. It has a number of reception rooms. Then a whole lot of other smaller rooms, some of which we think were probably residential. There's a possibility in the northern part there may have been some industrial activity mm. happening as well. And this is why you say some of the uh, building might have had public functions as well, because uh, meeting rooms, you're having those sort of uh, engagement with them. The bath complex had a, an exterior door. You could get to it from the street, so it might have had public use to some extent. The bath complex is significantly larger than anything you're going to use for just the family okay. in themselves. So yeah, it, yeah. You know, it has the full set of rooms that you'd expect to find in a Roman bath house. It has change rooms. It has cold, warm, hot baths. It has a steam room. It has underfloor heating, all those sorts of things. It has a latrine room. There's a second latrine room, in fact, that has space for 12 to 14 people to mm. use simultaneously. So again, that would suggest that that, that you've got just... 12 to 14 people at some point at <laughs> yeah, once. Exactly. <laughs> it's probably more than your yeah. typical family. And it was quite a common thing, particularly for you know elite Romans to have a bath complex within their own house, but then to make that available to some people as well as a way of showing you know, who was in their good books, basically. The public rooms that it had as well show this open usage as well? So yeah, we have in particular along the... The exact centre of the south wing, there's a large apsed hall, which seems to be something that's set up for public use. It's very elaborately decorated. It has mosaic flooring. There's traces of marble cladding from the walls and part of a half column that's been found and some cornice work that's elaborately detailed and so on. So it's a very lavish building that's been constructed. And it's very typical for what we find in this period of the kind of audience hall of basilica, but a private basilica as opposed to those basilicas that you'd find in the forum that were for public use. This is a much more private one mm. where people would have gone to see whoever lived in there to go and ask them for favours or conduct business with them, that sort of thing. Can we talk about decoration then? Because this is something that we have a good record for because there's been mosaics that have been uncovered and uh, I'd like to hear about those in a bit of detail. Uh, but it's probably important to say at the outset that when you, you look at this house, you're looking at vaguely the foundations. You've got a foot of wall. Is that maybe it? It varies a bit depending on where you are, but yeah, it's it's only the lower courses of the wall. Yeah, it's not so, you're not, so you're not walking into a house when you go and look at these ruins. You're using your imagination, but seeing some impressive mosaics. That's right. There's mosaics throughout a large number of the rooms within the house, particularly, you know, those entrance rooms that have mosaics in them, the portico has mosaics, those audience rooms, the bathhouses, all there's mosaics through there. As I say, there's bits of marble cladding from the main hall, give you a sense of, of what that decoration was like. There's another room where some of the plaster work has been preserved on the wall and that shows imitation marble cladding, which was again something quite common in this period to yeah. uh, create the uh, illusion of marble without having to go to all the expense of it. The peristyle, that main open courtyard in the centre of the house as well, we have some fragments of the columns that used to stand in that and they were granite and marble, uh, both of which are imported stone. They don't have supplies of that in Cyprus. So oh, wow. they've had to bring in there's something like 50 columns that went around that peristyle that they had to import. So yeah, yeah. a bit of expense going on, a bit of a flex there as well, really, in terms of showing off what you can mm. bring in. Most of the mosaics are geometric patterns of various sorts, but there's three mosaics in particular which have mythological scenes or mythological characters which are particularly famous. So in that main audience hall, we have one of the Bath of Achilles, 
We have another one of Theseus and the Minotaur, which is what the house is named after. Interestingly, that mosaic actually comes from an earlier building that was on that site. So that we think is from the third century AD. Oh, okay. But when they built the new one, they kept that mosaic and sort of incorporated it into the, the new building. Mm. And then there's another one of Poseidon and Amphitrite, which is located in what we think may have been part of the private rooms for the house. Okay, okay. So the mosaic showing Theseus, can you give me a, a bit more detail about that? Who is Theseus? What's he shown doing here? And why might this be something that you would want on your floor of your villa in Cyprus? So Theseus is a mythological hero from Athens, and he has a number of exploits, but the most famous of his exploits is that he defeats the Minotaur down mm. in Crete. So the Minotaur is this creature that has the body of a man and the head of a bull, and he lives inside this maze called the Labyrinth, and he has to be fed a number of children every year. And because Knossos, the town in Crete where this takes place, because Knossos has defeated Athens in a battle previously, the Athenians are required to send these children down at regular intervals to be fed to the Minotaur. And Theseus, being the brave warrior, decides to volunteer one year and actually solve the problem by killing the Minotaur. So that's that's exactly what he does. Mm. Uh, the challenge he has is to actually get out of the, the labyrinth once he's actually killed the Minotaur. So in order to do that, a local princess, Ariadne, does a deal with him and says, well, if you if you agree to, to marry me and take me away, then I'll give you a way to get out. And he says, all right, that sounds good. And she says, what you need to do is you need to take a, a thread, tie one end of it to a tree out before you go into the labyrinth and then unspool it as you go through. Then when you're done killing the Minotaur, you can trace that back and, and find your way out of the labyrinth. And Theseus slaps his head and goes, why didn't I think of that to yeah. begin with? Well, that, that's, that's really quite a common trope in, in Greek mythology, though, is that the, the men very rarely actually have plans. The, the men are good for going and whacking things and killing things and stabbing things, and it's the women usually that come up with the plans. So yep. okay. this, is a, this is a typical example of that. So he does that. It works out well. He takes Ariadne away, and then when she falls asleep, he ducks into the first island he sees and drops her off and then sails away and leaves her behind. So Classy. Yeah. Um, so Theseus is a jerk. Um, <laughs> he's one of, one of the two biggest jerks, I think, in Greek mythology. It'd be him and Jason would be the ones that would be really competing for that title. At any rate, what the mosaic is depicting is the killing of the Minotaur. It's really nicely done. It's, it's a circular mosaic. And in the central part of it, the actual killing of the Minotaur, where Theseus is actually stabbing it, and you have Ariadne watching on, and then you have personifications of Crete and the Labyrinth watching on as well, these other two characters. Yeah, okay. So one of the things that's really helpful about mosaics from this part of the world in this period is that they tend to write the names of each of the people in the mosaic in the mosaic. Yeah. So yeah. that makes it really easy to identify <laughs> who's who, which you know often you can't do with mosaics from other periods. So we have that in the center, and then around that, they've actually created with the mosaic tiles a maze to represent the labyrinths. Yeah, that's going it's, on it's really worth having a look at that. I liked how, how well they've done the perspective with the straight lines to convey a bit of depth to the yeah. maze. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's a really quite spectacular. And what do these mosaics uh, tell you about the, the time that they were being made or the different techniques they were using? So there's a couple of interesting things about the mosaics. One is that the style of mosaics is very similar to what we find in 
Syria and Turkey, and that's sort of very close to Cyprus, but clearly they've been influenced by those in terms of the style. That's something we see very typically with Cyprus is that a lot of the, the art and architecture will often be a bit of a blend of a number of the cultures around it, often with its own little bit of a twist. Yeah. One of the other things that I think is really interesting about these mosaics is that given that the house was built in the 4th century AD and continued in use for a couple of centuries after that, it's built about the time that the Roman Empire is turning Christian. And yet it contains these mosaics that deal with these traditional pagan mythological mm. themes. That I think is quite an interesting thing in itself. It's, it's not at all uncommon during this period to see a bit of a crossover where people are happily incorporating pagan myths into their house. Sometimes they're reinterpreting them into Christian thinking. Uh, sometimes they're just going along with them. It doesn't seem to be a contradiction. The Theseus ones predates the House of Theseus, though. Correct, yes. So I can kind of see, okay, you're incorporating something that looks really nice, but the the other one, the Bath of Achilles, that is contemporary with the house? We think so. Some have even suggested it might be a little bit later, but I, I think the majority view is that it's yeah contemporary with the extension of the house. So would you argue, not you, but you know, if, if I was putting that into a house and Christianity was becoming the next big thing at the time, I'd kind of say, no, look, this is all baptismal kind of theme. So yeah, that's one way you could interpret it. That's yeah. been suggested. Yes, it's Achilles having a bath, but really that's a, a reference to baptism. It's also been suggested that the depiction of, of Peleus, the father of Achilles, who's depicted there, he's depicted as a king, and so maybe this was considered appropriate in an audience chamber. I don't mm. know, so there's, a, there's a few different interpretations you can go with, but I, I think it's also worth noting that there have been a large number of statues found throughout the house, like there's at least 20 statues and there's fragments that suggest there are probably more than that. Mm. And a lot of them are also dealing with mythological themes. Someone was a fan. Exactly. Someone was a fan. Somebody liked it and they didn't see a contradiction with being Christian and still having mm. art from pagan period. Yeah. At, at some point it becomes less of, you know, art related to belief because I guess the appreciation of mythological themes and scenes and stories and I suppose that that's the time of that crossover. It's very reminiscent of the traditional Hellenistic palace yes, as well, yeah. which is also very much a square rectangular courtyard with the rooms arranged around it. Mm -hmm. Whereas, in, particularly as we're getting into the 4th century, a lot of Roman architecture is dealing with weird shapes and trying to combine different shapes together in surprising ways. And this idea, you know, look at something like the Palace of Diocletian at Split, for example, and then the, the rooms that you have there, each room is a different shape. So you go from one room to the next and it's a circular room, the next room's a square room, then the next one is an apsed room and the next one's a rectangle. You never know what you're going to get. And that seems to be part of the effect that they're going for there is a bit of a surprise. Yeah. yeah. They haven't really done that in the House of Theseus, so they've, they've, no. it's more traditional. Might it have something to do with the constraints of the environment that they were building in? Yeah, I'm not sure that they were too worried about that because the house actually extends over a couple of streets, so oh, wow. we can't fit it in a block, so we'll just extend over and block the street off. And in fact, the main entranceway for the house is actually at the T-junction, where street used to go right through, and that's now been closed off and that now becomes one of the main entryways or the main entryway into the house is actually what used to be the street. Okay. So they just built over the top of it. Another street got blocked off as well. So whoever was building this, I think, was in pretty good terms with the council. 
So it sounds like the occupants are deliberately making a choice then to be very traditional Roman then, not just in the design of this place, but the decoration as well. Yeah, the entryway is particularly interesting in in that respect because as you come in from the street, so what we can gather, there was a little porch out the front and then you went through that porch and then you have this long rectangular room that goes sort of perpendicular to the, the axis of entry, which is a waiting room. So it actually has a number of benches built into the wall. And then if you were lucky enough to be able to get admission past that point, you actually moved into a very traditional Roman style atrium complete with the little pool and impluvium in the middle of it, four columns going around there that would have held up the roof, that would have had an open space that would have allowed the rain to come through the roof there as well. Yeah, okay. And then directly opposite the entryway there, it's got a little apse, which would have had maybe an altar or a statue, we're not quite sure what. But yeah, the presence of the atrium is a very traditional piece of Roman architecture. And it's, you know, relatively uncommon in this part of the Roman world. So there's definitely a, a statement of, of Romanness being made by whoever the builder and, or owner of this place was. Yeah, yeah. It makes me think that it was a, a building that was maybe meant to be seen as Roman by people who aren't from around there. Oh, look, you know, we're going all the way to, to Cyprus and they've got this much Romanness here. Whereas when you go uh, further east, say, a lot of the buildings very much take on the, the architecture of the locality mm-hmm. to a certain extent, especially in that time. And I mean, again, that comes down to the question of who who was the house designed for. Mm. If it was designed for the Roman governor, then yeah, it could make sense to have a bit of Romanness there. If it was an elite member of the community, again, they may well be trying to show their affinity to the Romans and the Roman government by having a bit of Romanness in their house. But I think if you were standing outside the front door and looking in, you have this view that shows you directly into that atrium. Somebody walking down the street, what they would see would be an atrium. And then there's the solid wall at the back of that. You can't see further beyond that. So you can't see the peristyle and all the rest of that sort of luxury that's that's going on behind it. What you do see is just this traditional Roman atrium. So if somebody wants to go and see the villa of Theseus, what do they do? They, they show up to Neopaphos and, and walk right in? Yeah, pretty much. It's part of the main archaeological site of Neopaphos. Quite a bit of the city has been preserved, not terribly well, but you know, at least in the foundations. Mm. So there are a number of these elite houses, of which uh, House Theseus is the, the most fantastic, but there's a number of other ones which also have spectacular mosaics in them. Yeah. And then you can see the Agora, uh, you can see an Odeon, there's also a temple of a sanctuary of Asclepius, uh, there's a theatre, uh, which was originally built in the Hellenistic periods, but gets reworked in the Roman times, yeah. renovated. Yeah. Uh, there is also an amphitheatre that hasn't been excavated at this point. There's not much to, to see at this point. And then there's a couple of Christian churches, which are a bit detached from the main archaeological site, but quite close to it. Okay. And are the mosaics in situ or are they somewhere else in a museum? No, they're still there. Ooh, uh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, you can still, you can walk around it, you can get a pretty good sense for what the house was like if you can use a bit of imagination to extend those foundations up into walls and add in a roof and all the rest of it. That was Dr Christopher Gribben, an adjunct lecturer in classics and ancient history at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to When in Rome. You can like When in Rome on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow both of us on Twitter. Chris is at Classics Melb, I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. 
When in Rome is a crowdfunded podcast, so I'd like to give a sincere thanks to those who supported. Our imperator for this episode is Tracy Morgan Harris, and the triumvirs for Series 7 are Ken Acousti, Dean Pavitt, and Lorenzo Marasco. Ave to all of you. A special shout out to Ollie Julian, the composer of the music that you're listening to in this podcast. It's the theme music to the ITV show Plebs from Rise Comedy. That's it today from When in Rome. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening.